praise you for your word. Praise you for this amazing passage that points to all that is ours in the Lord Jesus. And please help me to speak with faithfulness. Help us to have hearts and minds that are open to your word. That we might be shaped in our daily lives by it. For your glory. Amen. Well, I wonder how you feel about Remembrance Sunday. I think if I'm honest, I have mixed feelings. The display down by the Tower of London at the moment, the the ceramic poppies, I think are incredibly powerful in some ways, aren't they? And many uh, thousands of people are going down there every day uh, to see them. What you see there is a representation of uh, many thousands of people who gave their lives to secure, uh, for us, freedom from tyranny. And we are free, and freedom is a good thing, isn't it? We rejoice in our freedom, and we thank them, and we remember them because of the cost they paid. Freedom is a thing that is worth uh, perhaps even dying for. Uh, So I'm thankful, but I struggle to rejoice in it. There's no joy for me, because each of those poppies represents a person who gave their lives, and, and... All of those poppies, only the the British soldiers who died, uh, countless others uh, in that one war and countless others in wars through the last century. Uh, We we have freedom, don't we? We have freedom from uh, from the rule of the Kaiser in the, the Great War, but not from the tyranny of death. See, freedom is a good thing, but all of us lose our freedom in the end. Not just those uh, men uh, buried in Flanders fields, but all of us. Death wins over all of us in the end, whatever other tyrannies we may avoid. So freedom, you see, it's a genuinely good thing and worth fighting for, but it's not the ultimate good, is it? The ultimate good is that death is not the end. The ultimate good is a life that extends beyond the grave... And that's what Paul is speaking about for us this evening. A willingness to endure the loss of everything here and now, if only to gain eternal life. Because that is the ultimate good. That's the thing that's worth paying the price for. And in order to get there, Paul has to address the $64 million question. Eternal life, you see, means living with God in joyful relationship forever... And the question is asked, well, how can we be sure that God will ever accept us? How can we know that we're good enough for God? Let me show you how that presents itself in our passage. Look down at verse 1 with me. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul is imagining, if you like, two paths in front of the Philippians. And beside one of the paths, Paul wants to erect a great big warning sign. Danger. Don't go down this road. Don't be a fool. He says, I'm doing this to keep you safe. Why this strong language? Because the two paths represent two different ways of approaching God. The Philippians are with Paul on one path, the path of trusting Jesus alone for their salvation, 
trusting that Jesus makes them acceptable to God. Uh, But there are men coming, and Paul meets them frequently in his letters and his journeys, men coming to Philippi who are going to invite them onto a second path. Men who will say, you can be more acceptable to God uh, if the ultimate good is uh, being in a right relationship with God, and these men come and say, you can be more sure, more right with God, well, who wouldn't want to be on that path? Who wouldn't want that sort of approximate, uh, proximity to God? Uh, the, alter- the, the alternative path looks attractive because it promises that we can be more secure in our relationship with God. And more than that, for the Philippians, uh, it, it represented being more socially acceptable as well. See, that Christianity was uh, an illegal religion in the Roman Empire, subject to persecution from, uh, from the Jews and from the Romans. Uh, but to be a Jew was to be part of a legal religion and uh, protected under law. And so the question comes, who wouldn't want to be more acceptable to God and more acceptable to people? The alternative path is very attractive, and Paul says, beware, that road leads to destruction. And so in verses 2 and 3, Paul puts a great distance between these two paths, as we'll see in a moment. The one path, verse 3, represents those who are trusting in Jesus alone. On the other, verse 2, those who, to some extent, are trusting in their own merits. And Paul says, beware. Beware. Watch out. Uh, But I want to focus in for a moment, if I can, on on verses 4 to 11. Really, the the example that Paul gives is 4 through to 14. But we'll continue uh, next week to look at uh, 12 through to the end of the chapter. But 4 through to to 11 uh, is Paul uh, reinforcing his warning by looking at himself. So let me show you from my own experience why you mustn't go down that path. I want to show you how utterly foolish it would be to trust in your own merits, even just a little bit. You see, these men who are coming to Philippi, they are uh, they're Jewish men who are coming to these non-Jewish Philippians and saying, if you really want to be proper Christians, you have to become a proper Jew. You have to submit to circumcision, you have to submit to the law. Okay, And Paul says, if, if you want to play that game, guys, if you want to play who's the best Jew in the house, well, it's me. I've got the best pedigree and the best performance. Isn't that what he says in verse 4? If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is Paul's argument from the greater to the lesser. He's saying confidence in the flesh, that is confidence in who you are, what you have, what you've done, confidence that you can offer something to God. And he says, if anybody thinks they have reasons for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more, many more reasons. And Paul's CV is far more impressive than anything the Philippians could ever come up with, far more impressive than these Jewish teachers could come up with. I just look down at verse, at verse 5 with me. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. According to the Jewish custom, he was not converted into Judaism, as the Philippians are being offered, but he was a pure-blood Israelite. But not just an Israelite, notice, of the tribe of Benjamin. That is one of the two tribes of Israel that remained faithful to God's king throughout the ages. Truly a Hebrew of Hebrews, by descent. 
a man with faultless pedigree. But not only does he have the right family, he has the right education. He trained under the great teacher Gamaliel, uh, the great Pharisee. He had, if you like, the very best education of his day. As a Pharisee, he was one of the people who took God's law most seriously among all the Jews. And so his ecclesiastical credentials are faultless as well. He is a super priest, if you like. But he goes on. You see, uh, Paul's performance among his peers was faultless as well. He exceeds the other Pharisees in zeal, did you notice? A heartfelt passion, which even led him to try and squash Christianity at its inception. So committed was Paul to being right with God by his own efforts that he hated the gospel of salvation by Christ alone. And he tried to annihilate it. And so, says Paul, look down at verse 6 with me. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. If anybody could be righteous under the law, it was me. He said, I tried that path. I've tried to make myself acceptable to God. I've more reasons than anybody probably in the whole of history for confidence in the flesh. And so if it doesn't work for me, don't be fooled into thinking it can work for you. You see, Paul was righteous in the eyes of men. Socially acceptable. The man is so far on the inside that everyone was jealous of him. They wanted to be him. And yet, in the eyes of God... Well, see, there's the turning point, isn't it? Verse 7. Uh, Paul, as he recounts his story, uh, almost skips over this. Uh, but here it is. Everything gets turned upside down. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul was a persecutor of the church. And he's on his way to Damascus to arrest the Christians uh, there. And he encounters Jesus Christ speaking to him from heaven. And Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, everything changes. Paul finally understood that. Far from pleasing God with his law-keeping, he was opposing God. He was attacking God. And I guess for Paul in that moment, he must have been terrified, mustn't he? Some of you will remember the story of Enron from uh, late 2001. Uh, one of the world's largest power companies collapsed quite spectacularly. And what transpired uh, as the court case went on was this. A bunch of senior executives had got together and said, what we're going to do is hide all our debts offshore and not report them. And we'll have all our assets and we'll record all our, our income, but we'll, we'll hide all the debts out of sight. And so this company grew and grew and grew rapidly to become one of the largest companies in the world. The law allowed them to do it, and though the auditors should have known better, they were making $50 million a year out of it, and so they went along with it too. And when this was exposed, their debts outweighed their assets by some considerable margin, that actually the company was nothing more than a big black hole of debt. Well, the company collapsed very quickly and the auditors went with them. And so it was with Paul. The people who should have taught him the truth had told him he could be right with God through his own efforts. And the law seemed to support that, didn't it? After all, it was law. 
You had to do it. And so Paul built this incredibly impressive CV. He was the man, if anyone was. And yet he was persecuting Jesus. And suddenly he was bankrupt. His false spiritual accounting had been ruthlessly exposed. He hadn't loved God, he'd persecuted him. He was confronted by the God of the universe and he had nothing to offer. Terrifying. Paul realised in a moment that he could never be good enough, could never love God enough, could never cover over the fact that he'd lived for himself. He'd related to God in his own way rather than the way God had told him to. He couldn't be good enough and neither can we. Perhaps you've ignored God and pretended that he doesn't exist. Well, the risen Lord Jesus, the God of the universe, says, you have rejected me and you've hated my gospel and you are bankrupt before me. Or perhaps like Paul, you have spent your whole life in the church and you've tried to relate to God by being good to doing good things, to being a nice person. You're relating to God on your own terms. And Jesus says, you have rejected me and you are bankrupt before me. Or perhaps you have followed any number of other religions, each one seeking to be right with God through obeying laws and doing good deeds, whilst ignoring God's gift of Jesus. And God says... You are bankrupt. You cannot be good enough for God to be happy with you because he is perfect and you are not. And the thing is, if we try, will we make ourselves detestable to God? Just look at verse 2 with me, would you? The language here is incredibly strong. Three times in the original, Paul says, beware or watch out. Uh, They're contracted there for, for the purposes of the English, but actually it's there three times in the original. Watch out, he says. This is what Paul wants to warn them against. This is what lies down this path. Watch out for those dogs, he says. That is a Jewish slang term for Gentiles, for non-Jews. Dirty, feral creatures. A bit like, I guess, foxes in London. You see them and you don't go and pet them, do you? They're the scum. They're the outsiders. And the shocking thing is, Paul is not talking about the Gentiles here. He's talking about Jews, those who insist on circumcision and law-keeping for getting right with God. He's used their own slang against them. Uh, Look down at the, the third thing he says, those mutilators of the flesh. That's a shocking thing to say. The mutilators were pagan priests who would get knives and cut themselves in order to get God's attention. Something the Jews are explicitly told not to do in the Old Testament. But here Paul says that those who rely on circumcision are no better than these pagan priests who cut themselves. The Jews have become pagans. More shocking still, I think, is the second line. Those men who do evil. What is the evil they're doing? It's keeping the law. God's law, the perfect law. But you see, those who trust in keeping the law to be right with God, they make all their deeds evil in God's sight. 
Paul couldn't be more shocking or more clear, could he? The Judaism that he himself had practiced, the Judaism that says you have to do something to be right with God, had become no better than paganism. It was no different from any other pagan religion. God is a God of perfection and justice. He cannot tolerate sin. And friends, there is no person alive who does not sin. Not even Paul with his legalistic righteousness. All any of us have is an Enron-sized debt before God. Paul's education, his social status, even his heritage as a Hebrew of Hebrews meant nothing if his trust was in those things and not in Christ. Whether you've done penance in Roman Catholicism, followed the five pillars of Islam, trusted in karma within Buddhism, or the law of the living God in Judaism, if you are relying on those things, then you cannot be right with a holy God. He will not accept you because you will not be perfect as he is and as he demands that you be. If you trust in those things, friends, you're on your own. And the path you're walking down leads to the cliff edge. Not up to God, but down to the pit. And that's why Paul considers everything else rubbish. In the final accounting, when everything you are and everything you have is exposed before a holy God, what can you boast in? Those things Paul has may be great gifts from God, but they're of no value before God. They add up to nothing. And so Paul himself considers them worthless. Did you notice that? If they don't matter in the final accounting when you stand before God, then they mustn't count now. And so what is it that you value more than Paul does? Paul looks at each area of his life, his education, his social standing, his family, his career, and he considers every one of them rubbish. Rubbish because they can't save him. Rubbish because they could distract him from Jesus, who does save him. Paul will not allow multiple objects of trust, Christ and something else. He won't allow multiple passions, Jesus and other things. So what is it for us? What is it that we value that Jesus would, that Paul would say, rubbish? What is your treasure? I could go any number of places uh, to apply this. Let me suggest one place. Family. How might family lead us away from Christ? It might be that we long to be married and are willing to put our hope not in Jesus but in someone else. Beware. Perhaps uh, becoming a Christian might mean that you lose a relationship with your parents or your siblings or a spouse or your community. And Paul says, if they don't avail on the last day, they're rubbish. Will you count the cost? Now, Paul doesn't demand that we walk away from family. I was thinking this afternoon about Acts 23, where, where Paul's life is saved by his nephew, his sister's uh, son. 
Paul didn't cast off his family connections, but at the same time, he didn't allow family to be a distraction from Jesus. And neither should we. Paul was at the very heart of Judaism. He had everything that a Jew could want. He was the most law-observant man of his generation. The man that every other Jew would say was the most blessed by God in the world. And it counted not a jot before Christ. And so Paul cast it aside to gain Christ. Now why would he do that? How could Paul cast away everything that the world considers dear for the sake of Jesus? And let's look at Paul's new confidence. Verses 9 to 11. Let's start though in verse 3. Paul says, For it is we who are the circumcision. Paul's used the word those three times in verse 2 to talk about the people on the wrong path. Now he turns to himself in the Philippians and says, We. Whilst the Judaizers have become pagans, the Jews have become pagans by trusting in their works, these Philippians, who used to be pagans, are now the real circumcision, he says. At the sign of circumcision in Judaism always pointed to the need to have our hearts circumcised, to remove sin from our lives. And Paul says, in Christ you have become the real circumcision. How? Look down again. It's we who worship by the Spirit of God. That is, the Spirit of Christ comes to live in our hearts to cause us to serve God. Not by laws imposed from the outside, but with a new heart from the inside. Circumcision on the inside. But still, says Paul, that doesn't mean we boast in ourselves. It's we who glory, literally boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Do you see? No confidence in the flesh. No trust in our own goodness, not even a little bit. Instead, Paul glories in Christ. See, whatever it is we treasure, that it is we boast in. That's what we talk about, that's what we care about, that's what we pursue. And Paul says the person who is safely on the right path boasts only in Jesus. Why so? Because through faith in Jesus we have a relationship with him, a righteousness from him, and a future resurrection with him. Let me unpack those briefly. First notice, the great treasure in Paul's life is to know Christ. Look down at verse 7. There's a progression here. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. And that's Paul's conversion day. Uh, Everything else lost, I want Jesus. Uh, But this is how Paul goes on. Verse 8. What is more, I consider everything, not just those things that he's listed, but everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. Paul says, everything is a loss. And I continue to think everything is a loss because I know that the greatest treasure is knowing Christ. Indeed, Paul says, I've lost all things and I don't care. He says there was a great cost to following Jesus. But he considers those things rubbish. Excrement, literally. So long as he can gain Christ. Paul met the God of the universe on the road to Damascus and everything else pales into insignificance at that point, doesn't it? This God has offered himself a relationship. Not on the basis of Paul's fleshly merit, but because of God's own kindness 
as a gift of grace. This perfect God-man Jesus wants a relationship with you. Nothing else matters. Paul says, whatever it costs to have that relationship, surely you pay the price. How? This God, this perfect God, wants a relationship with you. On what basis can we possibly have a relationship with this God? And this is really the heart of Paul's counter-argument to the Judaizers. Uh, Paul says, I want to be found in him. Paul doesn't want to be uh, to compromise for a second. He doesn't want to have a foot on each path, hedging his bets. He wants to be all in, found only in Jesus, only trusting Christ's marriage. Why? Because he knows that the righteousness that comes through obeying the law is not good enough. So he says, doesn't he? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Verse 9. Not having a righteousness that comes uh, of my own that comes from the law. If Paul is going to be right with God, if he can have a relationship with Jesus, he knows that the righteousness of his own is useless because he's bankrupt. But he goes on. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul says, I can't trust in my own righteousness. He says, what I need is a righteousness that comes from the outside, that's given to me. A righteousness from God. The righteousness of Christ. It's a righteousness that belongs to him when he puts his faith in Jesus. He becomes one with Jesus. That's why you can't boast in your flesh at all, he says. Because as soon as you do that, you're not trusting in Jesus anymore. It has to be all Jesus or all yourself. And Paul says, I'm, I'm totally sold on being in Jesus. Because being in Christ means God, God looks at you through Jesus. He sees Christ's righteousness when he sees you. When we trust in Jesus, it's as though we become a single person with him. His righteousness becomes ours, our sinful life becomes his. And when he died on the cross, he paid for our sin. And now he lives forever. Our sin is paid for, friends. Our attempts to be good enough for God are paid for. Even Paul's persecution of the church is paid for. All of it. Every Christian, righteous before God. Right standing before God because of Jesus. And because we're right with God, we can be sure that in the end, the third thing is the resurrection of the dead. See, there's your good. There's the ultimate good. If, if only in this life we have a relationship with God, it's not enough, is it? Because death ends it. But because Jesus is raised from the dead and lives forever, we will be raised with him to live forever as well. Paul says, look, folks, the only, true, only good thing that's truly worth dying for in this world is something that promises life in the next world. And this is it. Trust in Christ and strive to be found in him. Grow to love him, keep trusting him, and so be found completely and utterly in him on that final day. That's why Paul is prepared to suffer the loss of all other things. Jesus died for him and rose again. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in him. 
to enable him to suffer the loss of all things and to rejoice. Even willing to share in the sufferings of Christ, dying for Christ, if only he can get to know Christ better. Verses 10 and 11. I love that scene at the end of Les Miserables. You'll know it, I'm sure. Right in the last scene, when all those who died on the barricades kind of come back onto the stage. You know the scene? A few nods around the room. It's a picture of those who've died in faith. Those who have suffered death, but have died trusting in Jesus, who are raised from the dead, never to die again. Friends, the world cannot take from us what really matters. If we cling to Christ, who has secured for us an eternal future, and he gives us the power to consider all things a loss, then there is nothing the world can do. If we consider them lost, what can they take from us? They have no value anyway. But we must consider them a loss. Don't be distracted from Jesus by the things of this world. Let the world take from us what it will. It cannot take from us what is of ultimate value. I must wrap up. Paul is writing to the model church. They're facing suffering and they're tempted to boast in something other than Jesus to get rid of the suffering. And maybe it would. Maybe they wouldn't lose property or family or their lives. But if they move their boasting from Christ, well then they lose the only thing that really matters. Because it's only boasting in Christ that secures the future. If you're thinking of putting your trust in Jesus, let me encourage you to count the cost of doing so. Be willing to lose everything that you've previously thought precious in order to cling to him. But please notice how very precious Christ is. God gives himself to you as a gift in Jesus. He offers a relationship that is totally secure, eternal, joyful life, in Christ's presence forever. And so do count the cost of following Jesus. And then count the cost of not following him. Be careful, says Paul. Beware. Do not take the wrong path that leads to destruction. And many of us have counted the cost. We've been joyfully following Jesus for years. Let me return to the first verse of this chapter. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. There's a rejoicing. Not simply a thanksgiving tinged with mourning for the dead at war, but a rejoicing that enables us to suffer personally the loss of all things. And we rejoice because we rejoice in the Lord. We don't boast in ourselves or our achievements, not boasting in our status or privileges, but rejoicing in Christ alone. He is our treasure. He is our reward. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us the crown of life. Friends, let me encourage you to abandon the hopeless path of justifying yourself before God and rejoice instead in the completed free work of Christ. Let me pray for us. 
our great and glorious Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have given yourself to us. And that you've given yourself for us in dying for us. You've given us a, a promise that we will be with you forever if we trust in you. I pray for all uh, who are thinking of putting their trust in you uh, this evening, our Father uh, God, would you move them by your Spirit to trust in Jesus and help, to, help them to hold on to him, come what may. I pray for all of us who are uh, standing with uh, a foot on both paths, would we see how very uh, dangerous that is and put both feet firmly in the one camp, trusting only in Christ. Would we consider him our greatest treasure? And would you uh, help us to see and rejoice in uh, all that you've given to us in him? For your glory's sake. Amen.